I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I'm... Very briefly, going to do a short introduction of Alex this evening. So, and I think it's a real pleasure and honour to have that opportunity. But I expect that she's a very familiar presence to you on the cultural scene, and I almost expect that nobody in this room has not yet either read, seen, or heard um, of her before. Um, in the wake of her book, Romantic Moderns, about which I'll say more in a moment. She was, as you may know, chosen by the BBC as one of the new generation thinkers in 2011. What a brilliant choice that was. And since then, she has regularly written and presented uh, radio programmes, but also a television film on Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway. And she is a wonderfully engaging speaker in any medium. Ever since she won the Guardian First Book Award in 2010, she has been a regular reviewer for The Guardian and other places. Um, she's also written a commendably concise and insightful um, biography of um, Virginia Woolf. That last, however, was her second book, and it, the Guardian First Book Award was, of course, for Romantic Moderns. Now, this was not the first book to protest against the over-insistent lens that had been placed on modernist writers and artists in the 20th century. But I think it was the first that showed very fully that you could be both modern and romantic. You could be interested in experimentation and committed to it, but you could also have an interest in native traditions. And it was a book that paid attention to those artists and writers who had dared to reassess and reclaim the old in an age of what Alex calls compulsory newness. It both, I think, broadened our understanding of modernism, but also made us much more aware of all the constituents that create the English national identity. But what made it really so exhilarating to read was its generous embrace and its ability to reach out to a wide audience without compromising the nuances of her exacting research. So Alex's method, as those of you who've looked at her new book will know, um, favours a close reading of core texts with eclectic interdisciplinary work. And it's used in brilliant, with brilliant effect in this new book called Weatherlands. Um, here you will find 
She addresses climate and culture, both, you would say, rather large topics, especially when your attention is spread across uh, almost 2,000 years. But this is a book not only about weather, but about how over the centuries it came to be seen, studied, recorded, and eventually understood, and also how it has shaped our lives and thoughts. Its subtitle is Writers and Artists Under English Skies. And it is, in effect, I think, in some ways, about how we have lived in the past and how we live now. Of course, a little bit about how we might live in the future. It is, of course, about rain and clouds and sun and wind. Everyday things, you may say. But your awareness, your understanding, your appreciation of them, and the imaginative um, understanding of them will be greatly heightened, I think, by the reading of this book. I wonder if I could just end with an anecdote. Some years ago, an MA student from the Courtauld wrote to me and asked if she could come and see me because of my interest in John Piper. We, I think, met in the British Museum and we talked about British art in the 1930s. Um, um, Alex recently reminded that I bought her a BLT sandwich. <laughs> a rather inauspicious start, you might think, to our friendship, but at least it was British. <laughs> and so I'm going to hand over now to Alex to tell us a little bit about the book. But we thought we might start first with a, a comment or two on rain. <laughs> Francis, thank you for such an introduction. She said, oh, I've got a very brief, brief introduction, she said. You won't like it. Thank you. Um, and, and goodness, thank you for to anyone who's managed to make it through the, the rain today. I really feel that anyone here tonight must really want to hear about the, the weather. Um, <laughs> um, and in fact, I was, I was so so wet and depressed this afternoon and I thought has any of my five years of reading about the weather um, equipped me with any capacity to enjoy this this rain um, and and the some of the images I was trying to hold in mind um, are particularly from uh, medieval books of ours which um, have a great love for portraying people who have come home at the end of a very wet day and the fire is blazing, and they've taken off their boots. They're holding the boots to dry over the fire and wriggling their toes by the fire. Um, and almost any medieval encyclopedia or book of ours you find will, will include one of these absolutely core illustrations. This is the medieval idea of comfort at last after a day like this. Um, and of course, we must be grateful that we have quite waterproof shoes, whereas medieval shoes um, let in let in the rain. Um, oh, but can I can I just make another recommendation for rainy reading, um, which is uh, from a different century? Uh, it's John Gay's uh, Trivia from seventeen fourteen, um, and. If you need to walk around London in the, in the wet a lot, John Gay is the person to read. Um, his poem is subtitled The Art of, of Walking in London. Um, and with a, with a vein of, of satire, but actually I think quite helpfully and uh, uh, seriously, he sets out what kinds of coat uh, are, are better than other kinds of coat. Um, what sorts of wig can get wet and still look good? Um, what kinds of hat will most shelter your wig? How to stay close to the wall? Because, of course, in 18th century streets, you had to stay up close to the, the wall. Otherwise, you were in the drain, right? The, you know, the kennels running down the middle of the road and you get splashed. 
Um, and he gives you some prognostications for, um, for identifying urban city weather. I mean, Virgil, fine, but his prognostics were, were sort of rural. You know, if the crane sweeps low into the valley, mists will rise. Well, that's not much use in Bloomsbury, is it? So John Gay really gets to grips with it by saying that if, the, you, know, if you see the pub signpost swinging a bit, there's probably a wind on its way. You know, useful things like that. So, um, so there's, a, there's a rainy recommendation to start us off. And I don't think we should despair too much about tonight's rain, because at least we know that it won't rain for three months solidly as it did in the 1340s. That was awful, and yes. yes. <laughs> Would you like to remind us what happened with that? <laughs> um, a bit of gloom and doom now. Well, no, no, this is not a laughing... This isn't a laughing matter. This no, no. is... Yes. Um, this is uh, actually, thir- so 1314, actually, is the... Um, uh, the first of a series of just dreadful harvest seasons, um, which begin the the Great Famine, and this is, you know, it's if you drive the core the core back through time and think, okay, what was this day in centuries gone by? You know, the sixteenth of September. This is harvest week. This is the most important week of the year. This rain coming down in thirteen fourteen was catastrophe. Um, and and so, yeah. In the in the early fourteenth century, um, you you had what people then didn't know was the beginning of the Little Ice Age, which was a you know a shift towards um, much more extreme weather that lasted through to the eighteenth century, really. So we mustn't complain. No. <laughs> but actually, on that point, I mean, what's so wonderful about the the early part of the book where you talk a bit about the the way they related each month of the year to a labour. This is before, really, the notion, perhaps, of the seasons have been arrived at, or, or do you think they're already there at that time? Well, oh, so, so seasons are seasons are interesting because they shift, actually. Um, in fact, we're still not quite clear about our seasons because, you know, we we're not quite sure when autumn begins and summer summer ends. And in the in the Anglo-Saxon period. Um, a lot of people were thinking in terms of just a two-season year, um, winter and summer. It's dark or it's light, and it, which means that you get in the, the poetry, um, like in The Seafarer, you get um, hail is the coldest grain. So you've got this um, a sort of diptych where you know, there's summer wheat and there's winter hail, um, and things are, things are done in twos. But then in, um, in more Latinate culture, you have the four-season model um and and you get a sort of more gradual sense sense of the year and and because the medieval um scientists and encyclopedists were so obsessed by um reading the the world in fours um the four humors the four elements uh mapped onto the four ages of man and the four seasons you had to have four seasons i mean absolutely compulsory to have four seasons um, and you had to know what to do in your your four seasons to be in in tune with them. So, um, so in in autumn, for example, which is the um, the cold and dry season, you should eat hot and moist things. Um, and and the the guidebooks give you some hints about this uh, because you might not have guessed that chicken. Uh, and lamb is 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 yeah. it's hot and moist, and old wine. That's what you're meant to have in in autumn to tune yourself with the the weather outside. It's all about if it's if it's wet out there, you have to have dry things in here. Yes. I suppose the contrasts in the medieval period were were very much more pronounced. The contrast between light and dark, obviously, because didn't have street yeah. lights or anything like that. So so um, and illness and health and yeah. so on. So dark and light and 
summer and winter, it does explain it. But there are other ways, too, in which you suggest that the understanding of weather in that very early medieval period was um, almost sort of um, occluded in that, for instance, the winter they thought about in terms of fires. So uh, in the uh, calendar, the, mm. the images of the months, February was often where the figure's sitting in front of a fire rather than looking outside and seeing the snow on the ground. And I think you claim that the first representation of snow anywhere is... 12th century, is it? 13th, 12th? No, it's 1400. This is a founded claim. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I think because I'd, we all have a mental repertoire of, of, of medieval snow imagery, of, of, of people playing snowball fights in the, the streets, but actually that's from really late. That's, that's um, from 1400 onwards. Mm. And so... In my kind of chronological tour through literary and art history, you kind of notice what's missing as you're going along, as you're turning the pages of time almost. Um, and I realised that the um, early medieval approach to winter was to not draw it. Uh, what they show for winter is the indoor fire. It's feasting. It's yeah. it's uh, pressing pressing the grapes for for wine, um, and and not until and not until the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries do you get that huge interest in in the winter landscape in in a monochrome scene in the tracery of of bare branches. Um, we can all think of of Bruegel's Hunters in the Snow. That's fifteen sixty, so quite late actually. Extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But, um, but from very early, from the beginning of our, um, from English literature, um, there's a fascination with cold in the, in the, in the writing, mm. if not in the, in the painting. Yeah. And I've got this little um, bit to read about Beowulf. Is that all right? Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. And then I get to stand up, which means I can see people. That's very nice. Okay. So... Any tour through English literature better start with Beowulf. Um, but you know, here's Beowulf in terms of, of, of weather. Um, and it was really a sort of key moment for me in deciding to write this book was, um, was doing a lot of Anglo-Saxon reading. Um, and it happened to be in summer. I was lying outside on a sun lounger reading about exiles um, ploughing their way across icy waves. Um, even, even The Anglo-Saxons even see weather vanes as, as, as frozen exiles up on church roofs covered in snow. Um, and they do seem to they describe um, the, the glitter of ice, the song of icebergs. It's a culture very attuned to the meanings, the depths of, of meaning that come with with ice. Um, so that was that was all an you know, enormous lesson to me. Um, but in Beowulf. we have an interest, I think, in occlusions in, in strange mists. In the Anglo-Saxon world, the cold outside gave meaning to the Mead Hall fire. Though saints might seek solitary exposure, most people preferred the idea of the communal hall. In stories, it is the symbol of civilization itself, resisting the chaos of the unpredictable world beyond, where dragons appear in the sky and raiders come ashore at night. Winds and wild beasts may try the edges of the door, but they will not be admitted. 
in the confines of the hall. The Lord presides, his people talk and eat. Wooden benches are worn smooth, gold catches the light. The greatest surviving poem in Old English begins with the violation of such a place. The epic scope of Beowulf grows out of one central battle, which is specifically a hand-to-hand combat between the warrior Beowulf and the monster Grendel, but which is also a representative battle to safeguard the civilised human life of the hall against the forces of the outside world. The poem was composed somewhere in England, probably in the 8th or 9th century, but it looks back to Denmark in the 6th century. It's period drama, satisfyingly archaic. And the wild weather in Beowulf is both Danish and English weather, so that the dampness and frost of the Scandinavian setting feel strangely familiar to anyone who reads it in the marshier lowlands of England. There is the hall, Hjort, home to a society of civilised Danes. Then there is Grendel who prowls the borderlands shrouded in mist. Waiting in the darkness, hearing the sounds of feasting and singing, Grendel is a jealous outsider. The poet makes him a descendant of the first exile Cain, cast out from God as well as by men. Breaking into the hall, throwing his shadow across the place of light, Grendel seeks revenge for his exclusion. He is all that is inimical to taming. The poet's means of expressing the wildness outside is to invoke the foulest weather and environment. And in important ways, I think Grendel is the weather of the windswept crags and misty moors from which he emerges. He's described as a shadow stalker, moving stealthily, more like a ghostly mist than a savage animal. And his shape is always indistinct. He moves below the clouds, one under Vulcan. In Seamus Heaney's translation, which gestures to the wideness of the landscape, he moves under the bands of mist. It's true that Grendel is at least partly flesh and blood. When Beowulf wrestles off the monster's arm, the poet displays before us a gory bit of clawed anatomy, and Grendel leaves a trail of bloody footprints behind him when he goes. He's said to look like a man, but if he is momentarily corporeal, he is more often intangible, a death shadow, a thickening of air and light. These are the weather conditions, and this is the eerie atmosphere that will characterise centuries later many of the great English ghost stories. Henry James's The Turn of the Screw and the East Anglian tales of M.R. James occupy these places of grey occlusion. It's a long cultural journey from heroic Beowulf to the muted psychological tensions of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But all through that time, the forms of anxiety take shape in the mist. Those who recited Beowulf intended the audience around the fire to feel for a moment the blood run cold. And that acute sense of the inside versus the outside will shape English lives and literature across the centuries. If the Anglo-Saxons are in many ways remote from us, they are in this way very close. Their sheltered indoor spaces are treated with a kind of sanctity. Their art evokes the thrill of relief that still attends the drawing of the curtains on a dark winter evening or the shutting of the door against the wind. Thank you. The confines of the hall and the inside and the outside are... This notion of being in, looking at nature from the inside or outside is quite important, isn't it? Run, it is a recurrent uh, um, motif that runs through your book. Heat sitting at the window, sitting in a chair, 
um, um, Turner rushing out at the sight of a storm to make notes for Hannibal crossing the Alps. It's a, there are those who go out and embrace it and those who yes. yearn for the comfort of the enclosure. Exactly. And uh, you mentioned also the, the development of glass as being a quite a significant thing, which only the wealthy could afford to start with. You can, you can sort of write a, a history of changing sensibilities traced through this relationship between how far people who, people who immerse themselves in the sort of chaos of the, the weather outside and, and those who want to shelter, those who see art and the role of art yeah. as, a, as a kind of, of sheltering. Um, so in the, in the Anglo-Saxon verse, there's a, there's a way in which if you write a riddle about a storm but do it in very tight, alliterative couplets. You're taking charge of the weather. You're making something like an almost an interlaced jewel out of it. You can hold the wind and type it out on paper. Um, they didn't type, sorry, that was wrong. Um, write it out on paper. Um, if in, in the medieval period with those calendars you can, by force of will, map out the year as you want it to be by showing the labours of, of the months. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the 18th century, if you're John Gay, you see the art of the pavement layer as a sort of great, uh, a great triumph over the forces of, of chaos because then people don't sink down into the mud of the streets. You know, to pave the world is a great sort of enlightenment triumph. Um, William Cooper, with whom I fell in love while I was, I was writing this book, um, who's um, a, a terribly depressive poet, um, but also joyous in the, in the 1780s and 90s. And his great feeling is for sheltered places. He wants to go and sit in his alcove and watch the world from his alcove. And Hazlitt, the next generation, Hazlitt, the sort of the more romantic generation, thinks Cooper's pathetic. He can't even get out in the weather. He doesn't get to grips with the storm. So there's this, you know, the, the relationship between 18th and 19th century poetry can almost be written in terms of whether you go out into the storm or not. Amazing. <laughs> Coleridge, too, being one of those, the latter of the going out sort. Well, Coleridge can't wait for the storm. Yes. In, in 1802, he's there writing Dejection, which tells the story of his feeling absolutely numb inside on a kind of silent, still day. And he's longing for a storm that will somehow express some emotion, that will rouse him and allow him to, to, to write a poem, to think through his 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 feeling um and so there he is saying oh you know if now the gust were swelling um he's he's girding on the storm he wants it um and that's the sort of great romantic position to to yes. need that storm but there's a different kind of form of veneration of, of weather and that takes place in i think elizabeth first reign isn't there where she is almost seen to personify um a good wind and the sun um, famous Stitchley portrait of her standing on the a map of England, particularly on the, the Ditchley where she was entertained and, and the, her looking forward towards the sun, indicating yeah. that she's bringing peace and uh, well-being to the nation. Yes. Personified weather is a, um, a, 
curious strand of this this story actually um and in our in our age of landscape painting and and photographs we think of 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 weather very much in terms of atmosphere out, outside but if you're an elizabethan court poet to write about the sun is to write about Queen Elizabeth. Uh, <laughs> you know, to write about various planets is to describe a series of courtiers. That coded world in which you're not talking about atmosphere, you're talking about politics. Um, so I, you know, I became really intrigued by the whole mythology that builds up around uh, Elizabeth, whose um, who's flaming hair makes her. The, the sun um, and long of course after she goes great she's still the sun um, and obsessively uh, making everyone paint her with the orange hair of the sun not allowed to age. Yes there was a kind of decree that went out wasn't there that her portraits were not allowed to age so there was a sort of template which everybody had to follow and she herself tried to make her own face look like it's unchanging through the use of yeah. the white lead Paint, and it? yeah, so she's got the she's got the thick cerus on. Um, so the face is white, which is at the one and the same time the white of a blazing sun and the white of someone unsunned. It's the untanned face. Yes. Um, it's absolutely uh, immune from weather. So the immunity of of, of royalty from weather is, is a, obviously a very long story. So. You know, the Sun King, the Sun Queen, they are the weather <laughs> and are not affected by it, amazingly. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, in that world of coded weather, um, the, the Queen might well be in control of God's weather signs. So in one of the Elizabethan portraits, um, uh, the rainbow portrait, which I'm sure you, you know, you know, the whole point of the rainbow portrait is that there's Elizabeth holding God's bow, um, which only, a rainbow only appears with the sun. It shows that she's the, the sun. And um, the Armada portraits uh, show uh, her bringing the... Um, not only the sun, but the, the Protestant wind which scattered the Armada was created by Elizabeth herself, according to the, the court <laughs> mythology. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the amazing idea of human agency over mm. weather as surrogate for God's Very agency. But if yeah. we move on a bit and think about when people began to want to try to record and analyse and um, uh, make these um, fresh understanding, of course... That begins to totally change people's attitudes to the weather, doesn't it, and to understanding of it, and uh, particularly in the age of the Enlightenment, of course, but even slightly before that, when I think it was in the 14th century, we have the first nature diarist. Oh, it's true. William Merle. He knew. William Merle of Dryby, Lincolnshire. Um, he was a he was a, a rector um, uh, in this you know north coast. Uh, North Sea Coastal Parish, um, and he kept a weather diary in the 1340s. Uh, and it's the first surviving diary of ordinary weather. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's full of, of rain, snow, bits of hail. Um, and, of course, looking at it, we want it, we want it to be um, uh, a sort of empirical version of the way that we record the, the weather now. But it's 
he was very much a man of his his time and and he was an astrologer really and so someone like William Mole would have been recording the weather in order to measure it up against the movement of the planets and and stars um checking to see that you know that that snow came then because Venus and Pluto were in, no not Pluto Venus and <laughs> Mars were lined up um but so it's not it's really not until the sixteen sixties and the Royal Society yes. that you get the the move towards looking at daily weather. And and it is a huge shift from people going around thinking about Elizabeth as the, the sun and you know people in Ben Johnson's masks making themselves into rainbows. It's an enormous shift from that emblematic sense of weather to actually sitting down with a notebook and saying, Tuesday, seventeenth of June. Cloudy at first, rain later, <laughs> and it suddenly happens. Um, so Robert Robert Hook um, draws up a, a helpful chart that you might want to use if you're going to observe the weather. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Um, Robert Hooke, was, who was um, in the 1660s the chief curator of experiments at the, the Royal Society, um, and he issues, he issues a method for making a history of the weather and gives you examples as to what you might put in each box. Um, because, of course, you'll need a language for the sky. Nobody's, nobody's needed this before because they haven't written down what kinds of cloud there are. So he makes suggestions. You know, you might call that kind of cloud a uh, watered tabby cloud because it, re- it resembles the patterns on a certain kind of silk. Um, yes. and, and he wants to standardise that language. And was he the man who invented the air pump? Oh, that was someone just after That's him. That's Boyle. Yes. Oh, sorry, yes. But for the first time, there's the possibility, isn't there, of... Uh... No, it is Hook. Is it, but Boyle it... starts it off. Oh, right. Yes, they do it sort of together. <laughs> and now we arrive at the knowledge of the weight of air, which is quite something. Oh, you're asking me about science. Yeah, so the... So, so that sense of science is brilliant. No, it's my, one of the most but it was only brilliant for the you know the, the two months that it took to write that chapter, and then it all goes <laughs> from my mind. Um, <laughs> but the investigation into the physical makeup of air goes side by side with this sense that you now need to watch the weather on a daily basis if you're going to work out what's what's happening to it. So um, a little bit later, Erasmus. Darwin, who's who's watching the weather from uh, his home in in Litchfield, realizes that it's no good just recording the weather at two o'clock in the the morning and then at um, and then at four o'clock in the afternoon because the wind direction will have changed. All the important things are going to happen while you're not looking. Um, so he 
um, he puts a, a weather vane on his roof connected to an excellent dial in his, in his study so that while he's working on other things, the dial will suddenly go, Ding! and he'll know that there's been a big shift in the air. And he can quickly run over to the um, exciting weather clock he's set up by the fireplace, which will measure the, the temperature and the pressure. Yeah. And by this means, he discovered... Yeah the movement of air fronts, which he called districts of air. And you know, by this means Darwin realised that, that you get whole large patches of mobile air. Um, and of course, the weather is such a complicated thing that even in today's world, with what you call our supercomputers, it's still a very unpredictable thing to manage or to be sure about yeah. for more than a very short space of time. So it is an extraordinary phenomenon that we're we're still living with and gradually learning about. Um, and it felt, I mean, it felt to, to Francis Bacon when he was, uh, you know, writing his, his New Atlantis, he thought that, you know, it would take 10 years but people would crack how to, how to yeah. forecast the weather. And we're still, you know, four, 400 yeah. years on. But very yeah. useful for you was the meteorological office and its ability to tell you what the weather was like back in the 18th century. Is that... Right, the early nineteenth century, because or, or whoever it was who first discovered that Constable in one of his cloud paintings <laughs> had misstated it, because according to the very accurate portrayal of clouds, and it's extremely difficult to portray clouds accurately, because of course they move and change, mm-hmm. um, and this process of you know in process rather than a situation of permanence, was that they were able to say that the um, Constable had misstated that the. The small painting. Yeah, yeah. Because Constable was out on on Hampstead Heath, painting cloud after cloud after cloud through the eighteen twenties, um, and he would annotate them with little notes. You know, southwest wind, two p.m. Thursday the seventh. Um, and one of the most beautiful of his his cloud paintings, which is in the Ashmolean, and you know, just a little puff of cumulus, um, and he just learned to call it cumulus because Luke Howard had just named it, so that's nice. Um, with its little flush of of salmony pink on the edges, uh, yeah, and he gives it he gives it the wrong the wrong date, and and it just he's at that moment where the sort of huge romantic investment in the weather is emotion meets up with that scientific investment mm. in in yes. tracing the you know the, what the weather is doing in in poetry yeah. um so when he's painting a cloud he wants to know its emotional quality the sky is the chief organ of sentiment he mm. says mm. and yet at the same time he wants to know precisely how it's made up um so it really is a and not many people up, up, up before had seriously been looking at the skies in this sort of way, in this, with this real close uh, uh, observation. Yeah. But um, the, we must also acknowledge that there was a lot of resistance to weather, not least on the part of Dr. Johnson. Well, yes. <laughs> um, so this is, I mean, this is a question which goes through, through the centuries as well. Is, is it all right to be melancholy on a melancholy day? Um, Or should one resist? Should one actually be, like Elizabeth, immune? Uh, And and it's a question that is still, I suppose, asked in relation to seasonal affective disorder particularly. But, I mean, all of us, frankly, are a bit up and down with the weather. Um, And and so I, 
I was completely <coughs> fascinated by the way that this was talked through in the in the 18th century. Um, and the 18th century um, uh, commentators were interested in this because they were trying to figure out how powerful reason was and how far man could take charge of his emotions and quell them to the needs of his brain. So Dr. Johnson, who is the uh, the great representative figure of this, um, says that uh, to temperance, every day is bright, every hour propitious to diligence. <laughs> Whatever you see in the, in the morning, rise above it. Uh, and... He writes an extraordinary article in the Rambler in the 1750s saying that he's fed up with hearing about people uh, being put off their work by bad weather. They must get over it. He he causes a tyranny that we mustn't let our, our virtues be controlled by the most variable of variations, the yes. weather. And so he, he makes this huge deal out of being immune to the weather. But then, of course, Boswell, on whom nothing is, is lost, uh, spots that actually in every available private moment, Johnson's grumbling about the weather. Um, <laughs> and that he's actually unable to get any work done when it's cold. Um, <laughs> poor Johnson is trying to hide this and resist it. And his, his private notebooks, which were posthumously published, are full of these notes like, um, I can make myself like winter. Winter is challenging. Um, winter is invigorating. Um, must try better in autumn. Um, <laughs> and, and then at the end of his life, there's a terribly moving little note in a, in a, in a letter he, he writes um, saying, I am at last content to talk of the weather. Pride must have a fall. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I suppose that the other thing about the 18th century was that there was a lot of Mediterranean influence came in, and with it came classicism, and uh, many in our buildings and houses we see the influence of Palladio and others. And uh, sometimes when you go to visit, say, Chiswick House, which Lord Burlington built, in, uh, modelled on two villas that mm. um, Bellagio had bu- built in the Veneto, when where there's a lot of sun, there's a beautiful uh, temperature, which means you don't have to have doors and windows filled in. You can walk through and experience the relationship between the external and internal mm. space in one sort of continuous flow. And yet Chiswick seems a rather chilly uh, building. It's sharp, you know, sharply white and the sort of rather and on a gloomy day. It just looks completely wrong. <laughs> yes. So there is, a, there is a problem with classicism relocated northwards. Mm. Um, you know, frankly, a house designed for the Mediterranean might not be great in a soggy field. Um, and, and Chiswick, Houghton Hall, Holcombe in Norfolk, they're all... Um, expressions of this moment when the English thought we're not going to take any notice of our native weather, we're going to pretend it's like Greece and like Tivoli um, and build our Palladian villa um, and, and what happens to it <laughs> um, so with, with Chiswick particularly um, uh, Alexander Pope writes that, that great mocking line about Palladian builders who are proud to catch cold by a Venetian front door, um, suffer, suffering for their style. Um, and gradually people uh, would surreptitiously 
uh, bring in forms of warmth. So, you know, here here and there, a carpet got laid. Uh, at Chiswick, the, there was one room where everything was coated in velvet. Um, at Houghton, there was a special little sort of snug room that you could go when you were really, really cold in the marble hall. You could at least sidle off into this warm space. Um, but there's such a story of, of cultural inheritance there, of how of how far we've been able to inherit the classical world, yes, I think. Yes, totally important, yes. I mean, the umbrella yes. is a better inheritance, because obviously in Italy <laughs> that was a parasol. Um, and, you know... Um, um, umber little little shade uh, and and the first umbrellas used in in England were shades and were just used for for women but then that worked rather well as, as soon as someone invented waterproofing which helped it was good as an umbrella yeah I think if we could just touch on one of the saddest moments in this book which is uh, Ruskin who began his life and career um urging artists to go to nature and all truthfulness of heart, copying and rejecting nothing, mm. selecting nothing. Because, of course, he believed that everything you looked at in, in nature was the divine product of uh, God's product, you know, God's creation. And so it should be treated with great reverence. And then later on in life, when there's a lot of sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere and he sees great clouds forming, um, he has a completely different change of heart, doesn't he? It's a tragic story, really. Um, Ruskin, who worships the sky um, and who writes about it with the passion of someone who wants to save up every divinely produced effect of of the sky. So, I mean, part of the reason that Modern Painters runs to so many volumes is that he keeps wanting to describe the sky. Um, And and he will get up at, at dawn and start counting clouds. I mean, he did sit at his window and say, you know, one, two, three, four, there's 60 clouds in that row, there are 90 streets. At one, on one morning, you know, on a particular April dawn, he counts up to 4,335 clouds. I mean, it's quite a, a commitment to, <laughs> to the sky. And, of course, he's, he's also using watercolour to try and, and preserve certain effects. Um, he, he said in a lecture once that he wanted to bottle the sky. His father was a sherry merchant and specialised in bottling sherry. Um, and Ruskin wanted to bottle nature in a way because it was, it, it was divine. And, and part of his great passion for Turner was his sense that Turner was a realist. Turner looked at precisely how a mist formed. Ruskin's version of Turner is not as someone uh, making impressions with great energy across a paper, doing um, great sort of swirls and vortices. Um, it's a, as a meticulous realist. And that's his, you know, that's his, his way of thinking about Turner. Um, and then... In 1869, when he's in the Alps, he says that the air has become defiled, that an atmosphere which had previously been crystal clear was now umbered. Umber is his great word for a tainted sky. Um, There's where the ages of light are, the ages of umber. And... 
then through the 1870s and 80s, he becomes absolutely convinced that there is a new climate, uh, not only in, in Britain, but across Europe, and that it is a malign climate, that it is God's, um, God's message to man that we have fallen out of, um, fallen out of relationship with, with nature. Um, and intriguingly, he insisted that it was not just one uses the word just advisedly, not just pollution. So obviously this is a you know a time of enormous industrialization. The, the smog problem is is um acknowledged by all. But Ruskin says, no, what I see is not mere smoke. He says mere smoke would not blow around in this uh disturbing way. He says that there is a new kind of wind, which he calls a plague wind. And he tries to measure it. He has his anemometer going round. I can't say that, anemometer. Um, going round. And he says, though I can measure the speed of the wind, I cannot find a way to measure the fact that it goes round tremblingly, that this wind has a malicious anxiety in it. Mm. Um, and so his sense of the emotional quality of this this weather is utterly overpowering to him. And... And and he he builds up to these two lectures in 1882 called the Storm Cloud of the 19th Century, um, in which he describes the the death of God's pure atmosphere and the inauguration of a, a new age in which the sky looks like dead men's souls, yeah. implying a break between the covenant between man absolutely, and God. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I think before we just open it up to the floor, in case there's any questions you would like to ask Alex, I might ask you if there's is there any other passage you'd like to read? Um, well, I my little this is a bit sad though. Oh, we love but sad things, a, <laughs> but it is rainy. Um, I might not do it all. I'll just do a little bit. Um, it's a contrast, really, with with Ruskin, because though Ruskin was deeply disturbed by what he saw in the sky, he thought that there was a conversation between man and sky. He saw. Um, the sky having meaning. Thomas Hardy, on the other hand, saw only blankness. So this is a little bit from from, um, the end of my Victorian chapter. Thomas Hardy looked out at the weather in Dorset during the same years in which Ruskin saw spectres in the air. He observed nothing but emptiness. Ruskin watched apocalypse spelled out. Hardy watched only the rain. He described approvingly in The Return of the Native the practicality with which his heroine Thomason presses on across Egdon Heath on a foul, wet night. Quote, To her, there were not, as to Eustacia, demons in the air and malice in every bush and bough. The drops which lashed her face were not scorpions, but prosy rain. Egdon in the mass was no monster whatever, but impersonal open ground. To accept the prosiness of rain seemed to Hardy sensible and necessary, but terribly hard. He wrote over and again about the sorrow of finding that the sky is an unanswering blank. Ruskin's prose tended towards a pitch of high rhetoric when he wrote about the weather, but Hardy insisted, just as sadly, that poetic figurations are out of place because rain has no grand intention. There is no God in his sky and no providence. Hardy's people like to feel they have been singled out for the weather's malice. 
but the rain which drowns Michael Henchard's crops in the Mayor of Casterbridge and makes a washout of his entertainments is not casting judgment on anyone. Henchard is not fated, he is simply not very well prepared. His is a lowlier tragedy than any providential downfall. Hardy knew that humans must make meaning for their world, but he also knew that rain does not deal in meanings. Rain on a grave was one of his symbols for nature's indifference to human lives. He made a grotesque emblem of it in Far From the Madding Crowd. Sergeant Troy has attempted to make late reparations to the woman he abandoned by planting flowers on Fanny Robin's grave. It is done with frantic tenderness, though it is consoling only to Troy himself. He rests exhausted in the church porch, and as he sleeps, the rain comes down. No one has realised that the new grave is positioned just where the water gushes from the leering mouth of a gargoyle high on Weatherbury Church Tower. At first, there is just a splattering. Then the stream thickened and it, its substance and increased in power, gradually spouting further and yet further from the side of the tower. The water arches out and soon the soil is churned to mud, every plant uprooted. In the context of Victorian literature's many damp patches and dripping pipes, this is a, a caricaturist, sorry, this is a caricaturist's masterly black joke. The tap of the heavens runs in a roaring torrent. It is as if every drip, drip, drip of the 19th century were channeled through that precisely angled spout. There is a parody here of all weeping elegy, and Troy deserves it. Natural justice seems to have been done, condemning past negligence and his inadequate last gesture. Troy certainly understands himself to have been judged. But for Hardy, the truth is worse than any cosmic doomsday. The truth is that there is no connection at all between Troy's behaviour and the gushing water. The gargoyles have expressions, but they are only stone, just as the sky has expressions and is only air. They look to have malign intent, but neither, neither the gargoyles nor the rain have agency. The persistent torrent from the gargoyles' jaws directed all its vengeance into the grave, writes Hardy, knowing full well that vengeance has nothing to do with it. Thank you very much, Harry. It's lovely. Um, we do have a little time, I think. John's got a, um, a handheld mic. <laughs> so if, if there is if anyone with um, any form of question that they would like to ask or any comment, or whether experience they would like to volunteer, have you got one here? Hello, thank you very much. Um, I'm sorry I haven't had a chance to look at your book yet, but I read a long piece about it at the weekend. I wanted to do something you touched on was Jane Austen and Emma and Mr Knightley's proposal. Yeah. Because to me that's something I always go back to as just being... I mean, one doesn't think of Jane Austen as a writer of... She's much more interested in what's going on inside the room and inside the head of her protagonists. But... It's such a characteristic English summer day, a disappointing cloudy day where the clouds part in the evening. Yes. 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 Um, And and the night before, the weather has added what it can of gloom. (laughs) Isn't that extraordinary? Um, But of course, because Emma is a wise heroine, she she understands that the weather is is gloomy. and, does, and won't let herself be immersed in that in the way that Marianne would let herself in Sense and Sensibility would, um, would sort of worship the gloominess of it and wallow in it. Emma won't do that and stands back from the weather a little bit. And, 
and Austen measures those relationships between her characters and the weather so finely, I think. Um, I mean, having mentioned Marianne, I can't, I can't resist um, uh, talking about the, the moments in, in Sense and Sensibility where, where Marianne is completely taken by the idea, the picturesque idea of, of autumn um, and remembering the, remembering the fall of autumn leaves and how wonderful they are. And, oh, with what transporting sensations have I previously seen them fall? And then Eleanor says, you know, not everybody, my dear, has your passion for dead leaves. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Austin just knows why it is that Marianne might love those leaves and why brisk air is beautiful. Austin knows her weather. But what she really admires is those moments where people can also stand back from it and make their own decisions and be guarded. Um, so I think that she is a very great weather writer, as much so as Coleridge or Wordsworth. Back. Thanks. Uh, really great. Um, now we have a very clear ontological distinction between weather and sort of the stars and things that take place, you know, outside of the earth. I'm just asking purely from ignorance, was that sort of idea, you know, the sort of past idea of the heavens, things like meteor showers that are seasonal but are not themselves weather, was that as acutely observed? And what sort of portents were read into things that change with the seasons but aren't now what we consider as weather? Wow. Okay. Astrometeorology. Um, okay. I'm so not expert on this, but we'll really try. Thank you. Um, so um, in Renaissance and medieval science, meteors are, um, well, in Greek, it's what is, what is raised up from the earth. So meteors operate in the space between the earth and the, heaven, and the, and the moon. Um, and everything above the moon is stable and constant um, and keeps its cyclical order. And everything under the moon is subject to um, all kinds of unpredictable change. Um, and that's why in, um, in pre-enlightenment science, um, meteors can include not only wind and rain and floods, but comets and uh, because they come down into the... They come down into the uh, lunar sphere um, and earthquakes, which are thought to be caused by um, exhalations of underground air moving around. Um, and what else are they called? Volcanoes. That's a meteor as well. So it's, it's a really different sense of what comprises weather. So, and our sense that weather is 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 a quite limited, contained set of atmospheric conditions is is only uh, post-18th century yeah and in fact of course nowadays the, the meteorological office has set up a, a center for space weather which goes beyond that um, yeah. pocket and into the uh, further up and yeah uh, do you know what i didn't cover space weather no <laughs> i can't i can't maybe space weather isn't it um but but the but the fascinating thing is how far the um the the sphere above the moon, i.e. The, the planetary movements, um, are thought to dictate the, the sublunar weather. Yeah. Um, and this system, which is so like clockwork, you know, that, that even though the even though weather um, is unpredictable, there's a sense that in the first creation, 
God set the limits for how far weather can change. So that though there may be floods, the floods can only reach a certain level and will, in the averaging out of things, be brought back to a certain level. Mm. So that even the sublunar sphere has limits to it. And all of its all of its responses to the planetary influence are sort of pre-programmed. Mm. Mm. God, it's amazing, isn't it? This is truly amazing. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, I mean oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, but equally amazing is this book, and I can't uh, um, explain quite how, how much I would like to say more about it. But I would just um, mention that in the in the final chapter. Alex gives us a description of going to hear a performance of Benjamin Britten's Lawyer's Flood. I forget where it was. Um, it was at Tewkesbury. At Tewkesbury. And, which had just uh, been flooded. Which had just been flooded. And her, her appreciation of the place she's in, what she hears, she arrives before the actual performance is happening and sees people practicing and so on. And even when she comes out and looks back and sees a a child crocodile, still in his crocodile uh, uniform, fancy dress, <laughs> moving among the graves, and even an octopus dancing on another grave. The, the, the pleasure, the sheer immediacy of enjoyment in the things that she's describing, and this is found all the way through the book, and it's one of the reasons why it's such a huge uh, gift to us all. So thank you very well, much, Alex, you, for all that you've done. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Alex. What a treat. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.